to Voices of the Belt and Road podcast, brought to you by the Belt and Road Advisory, your professional advisors on all matters concerning the Belt and Road Initiative. Voices of the Belt and Road is our flagship podcast, and with each episode, we'll hear the personal stories of people who are part of the Belt and Road Initiative. The aim of this podcast is to demystify the initiative by interviewing a broad array of people whose lives are impacted day in and day out by the world's largest cross-border trade initiative and infrastructure build-up. On this podcast, in addition to university researchers, think tank experts, and policymakers, you can also hear from business people, workers, and countless others involved in the Belt and Road. You'll hear people tell their own personal stories in their own languages, because at the end of the day, the Belt and Road Initiative is changing people's lives, and we want you to hear it from them. Please enjoy this week's podcast, and thanks for tuning in. I'm James Lalonde, and I'm your host for this week's edition of the Voices of the Belt and Road podcast. I'm very excited to have Harvey Zodin on today to discuss what he calls the fifth pillar of the Belt and Road, which is soft power. Harvey is full of insights and experience, and I personally am proud to call him a mentor of mine. Today, Harvey will give us a background as well as a bit of a scorecard on how China is leveraging soft power, especially its unique cultural aspects as well as share with us some of his personal ideas on how to achieve this. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome, Harvey. And first, can you introduce yourself and what you do and what brought you to China? Yeah, sure, James. The first time I came to China was in 1988. If somebody told me back then that I'd be living in China for 16 years, I would have told them that I have a good referral for a psychiatrist for them. China was so different back then. It really was centuries ago in, in many ways. But I have lived here for that length of time. And during that time, I built on my experience in America as a government worker, uh, especially working with President Jimmy Carter, and also being a vice president of ABC television, and also working for the UN. So here in China, I um, mostly uh, write for various publications. I speak at various conferences. We've spoken together at a conference, and I'm a commentator on English language, Chinese radio, and TV. And I have a family, a Chinese wife from Shandong, and uh, two stepchildren who grew up in Vienna, Austria, uh, and two dogs. A lot is being said about China's economic influence growing abroad. At the same time, China's soft power standing has long been labeled as very limited. Is that still the case? Does economic influence make China more attractive and influential in the soft power aspect? It's a double-edged sword, really. Now, if you look at Africa, the favorables for China are very high. And if you look at the disbursements for uh, Belt and Road Initiative and other kinds of aid, China is the continent that gets most of it. But it doesn't guarantee success. Take Kenya. There have been a couple problems in Kenya. So they have this railway that um, goes from Nairobi to Mombasa, built by the Chinese. It's uh, a magnificent railway, 
but it has a problem. The problem is that recently the Chinese staff have been complaining that uh, the uh, locals don't let them take the same buses together. The locals don't let them eat in the cafeteria together. This does not make for good uh, bilateral or interracial relations. Um, a couple years ago in Nairobi, a Chinese restaurant banned local uh, Kenyans from coming into their restaurant after six o'clock. And uh, the local people were justifiably up in arms. The restaurant owners uh, said that the uh, problem was that they were afraid some of the people who came in might be terrorists, but that didn't wash very well. And they soon changed their policy. And I think they subsequently went out of business. In a way, this is a problem that exists uh, in many countries, but especially in Africa, where the Chinese workers live in compounds, actually quite hermetically sealed compounds, and don't mix with the locals. So China can spend billions and billions of RMB to build wonderful projects, but they're never going to win hearts and minds unless they find a way to meet uh, locals and Chinese halfway. Thanks, Harvey, for those examples. I think Western powers have all had their problems as well in Africa throughout history. Has the Belt and Road initiative uh, helped China increase its soft power? Has it been a success or a failure? I think uh, because it's only about five years old, it's still uh, in its adolescence. And so it's coming along and uh, it has uh, a lot of learning and we learn through trial and error. So uh, there are some financial glitches about uh, countries and how they pay for the loans that the Chinese uh, grant them. On the soft power part, I think they're also feeling their way. And I think that uh, it's something that's naturally going to take time. There's no manual about uh, winning hearts and minds. But I believe that um, the fifth pillar of Belt and Road Initiative, which is uh, soft power and people-to-people -people exchanges, needs a lot of work. China does not uh, know how to do soft power very well. And I often wonder about why that's the case. I think one of the reasons is that China was a leading power for so many thousands of years that um, they are not so used to sharing and promoting themselves. But today is different because you need to win hearts and minds. You can spend all the money in the world and still not get people's loyalty if you don't also get their trust and also teach them about your culture and learn about theirs. The Chinese of late have been known for being a quick study, for having an uncanny ability for taking the best practices from all over the world and rapidly implementing them at home in China. The last two decades have seen a huge increase in the number of Chinese firms operating internationally. In some cases, they've been successful at building a good reputation, in other cases less so. What explains this divergence? Can you give examples? I think the soft power is different. So they don't have to go back a long time to see other examples. 
So if you want to take soft power leadership, you can look at the United States, for example. I like to say that um, United States is uh, an unintentional cultural imperialist leader <laughs> because for at least the last uh, 100 plus years, America's been it, whether it's music, whether it's cinema, whether it's dance, et cetera, et cetera, the U.S. has done a very good job of promoting its soft culture. And that's why if you ask anybody in the world if they've ever been to New York, they might tell you they haven't, but they feel like they've been there because they've seen so many movies, so many TV series from America. So this is what the Chinese need to work towards. Chinese are quick learners, and I'm sure they'll find the formula. So um, they're doing uh, better. Uh, they have a long way to go. People had hoped that they would do better in cinema and in joint ventures with uh, Hollywood on movies. They haven't done so well yet, but they'll get there eventually because uh, Hollywood likes one thing more than anything else. We call it OPM, other people's money. And so China has a lot of money. China would like to spread its culture and uh, Hollywood is gonna help them spend it. So I think eventually, um, this is a tough nut to crack, but it's going to be cracked and there will be multicultural experiences uh, like the movie that just came out recently uh, about the you know rich kids in China yeah uh, that did very very well yeah and so I think this is a harbinger of things to come uh, yeah you're referring to the book Crazy Rich Asians which has recently been adapted into a Hollywood feature film it is really the first big budget Hollywood feature uh, to have an all-Asian cast everyone is saying it it's the harbinger of a new era in Hollywood. You know, we'll, we'll see. The film actually, though, could change the impressions that Westerners have about Chinese. Given that Chinese firms find it harder to develop their PR strategies abroad versus other multinationals, what are some of the tangible steps that Chinese firms can take to improve their reputation abroad? And where does the government PR stop and the corporate PR begin? How do they deal with the different promotional domains, government vis-a-vis -vis corporate? Uh, I think in the American case, it's a mixed because uh, many embassies do have cultural okay. centers. And I do think that the Chinese tried to do this with Confucius Institutes. Unfortunately, they've run into some problems. And to me, one of the problems is that Confucius Institutes are primarily about language training. When they have a pre-selected audience, they should be doing more culture, more art, more movies, and things like that. They don't do enough of it. So I think they're also, the Chinese government is also starting to build Chinese culture centers around the world. I think there's 20 some right now. And uh, I read a report and I wrote an article, in fact, about the one in Brussels, Belgium. And uh, they did a great art exhibition there. And so I think this is a, a very uh, good model. The, the problem basically with the Chinese soft power is the Chinese spend billions of RMB on building soft power through culture. 
but it's hard to separate those cultural issues from some of the political concerns that the government has. And the government will also always default towards uh, order uh, versus creativity or anything like that. So it's a balancing act for the government, and this is gonna take some time to fix. I believe the best kind of model actually is this uh, hot topic of recently of PPP, public private partnerships. And so I have an idea, it's not an original idea, people have tried and failed because it's expensive, that if the Chinese really wanted to promote culture, they should build a replica of Admiral Zheng He's ships. Admiral Zheng He, as most people know, was a Ming Dynasty um, admiral who did treasure voyages uh, as far away, some people say, as Australia and America, but certainly to Africa, the Middle East, and to the region. And the ships were enormous, and uh, people don't know about this. In fact, I'd say in America anyway, most people don't know Chinese history pre-World War II. So this would be a revelation. So my idea is to build this tall ship as a floating museum using the most high-tech uh, equipment that's available and to go not only along the Maritime Silk Road, but the Pearl River Delta and everywhere there's a port. When I lived in New York and I was a vice president of ABC, I was lucky enough to be invited frequently on the United States Coast Guard tall ship, which is called the Eagle. It's the Coast Guard uses it as most navies use theirs for training purposes. It's a beautiful boat. Um, and many countries, small countries, let's say like Chile, they have one called the Esmeralda. It's multi-masted, it's beautiful. China doesn't have it. If China built a model, a, even a small scale model, because it would still be huge, of Admiral Zheng He's ship, I think it would really impress people and make them think about the fact that China is not just uh, Johnny-come-lately to the world leadership, or, but also that it has a rich history. And I think that uh, this is something that could be done it doesn't have to involve politics. It would be spectacularly beautiful, and it could go all the way around the world. So for uh, Belt and Road Initiative and the people-to-people -people exchanges, this is one idea I have. And since we're talking about it, the other idea I have is a Chinese technology that I think should be shared with the world. You and I talk to each other on WeChat sometimes. WeChat is a great technology. One of the things it lets me do, because I don't speak Chinese like you do, um, is to speak to anybody in another language uh, because the built-in software for translation gets better every day and it's getting really closer to perfect. And so I advocate that um, Chinese students as young as five or six or seven get to link up by WeChat with schools or individuals in other countries to make friends because they're not only making individual friends, they're making friends for uh, China as well. And maybe, who knows, their class or individually, their families may come visit each other. And because you're starting with young children, we're talking about friendships for life, both personal and uh, 
countrywide. So I think we need to build international understanding. We're going through a really rough patch now with the bilateral US-China relations. We need to have some confidence building measures that are win-win. Well, Harvey, as you know, as a technology entrepreneur in China, myself, you know, I have a company that delivers language training solutions on the WeChat platform. And I know the power of the platform. So one of the key reasons I became so involved personally with the Belt and Road is because I feel that the communication, sharing, and payment capabilities of WeChat will actually bring the Belt and Road countries closer together in a way that not even shared infrastructure can. And with regard to Zhonghe, uh, when I was in Sri Lanka recently, I was amazed to see a huge museum dedicated to Zhonghe. The fact that Zhonghe was not a pirate but was a true ambassador for China is really amazing given the fact that it was so long ago in the Ming Dynasty. He literally brought opulent gifts for all the countries he visited and basically said to you know, the leaders of these countries, these gifts are for you from my country, China. Please take them and know that we are a civilized country with a lot to offer. He was kind of like the Ming Dynasty version of Santa Claus. Seriously, with, with more Chinese firms operating internationally, you know, how they conduct themselves in overseas markets will be either a net positive or a net negative as they begin to leverage their soft power. In America, uh, we do a lot of things that encourage corporations to be good corporate citizens. Our tax policy does that and there's various incentives. Also, it's good for business. It's not like people are just shoveling money at some nice project and not going to get a return because uh, goodwill, word of mouth, these are the best kinds of marketing. And uh, Chinese companies, um, because they're still feeling their way, they still have some uh, way to go in terms of branding uh, themselves in other countries. It's a great way for the Chinese companies to uh, get known, but also to put on uh, programs, whether they support museums or Zhonghe's ship project or ballet or symphonies, because it's really uh, important for them to mix with the local community and to build up bonds, because this is the only way at the end of the day that we're going to be able, at least for bilaterally, emphasize the um, friends part of frenemies. Probably our two countries are always going to be frenemies. And um, the trick is to make it more friend than enemies. So I believe that culture and soft power and cooperative soft power are the best ways to go. So how would a company go about promoting themselves in, say, the U.S. and begin to win the hearts and minds of the American public? You know, a country where the public has so many preconceived notions of what China is and what it stands for. Not all of them good, and a lot of them still lingering from the Cold War era. One problem I see in China is that uh, Chinese people are very confident. Sometimes that's bad, because if you think that you know it all, you may, but more likely you may not. So it's really important to get 
good marketing and public relations counsel from experts who've uh, done this uh, as entities for, for decades. And I've seen the work that they can do, and they can do great work. They've had successes, they've had failures, they've learned from their mistakes. So it will fast track companies. It behooves them to find uh, PR companies, marketing companies that have operated in China and in other countries for a while. It not only helps the Chinese company position themselves, build their brand, but also helps them to help those companies sponsor worthwhile projects that fit like a hand and a glove with their mission. So it is, again, a thing that could be win-win. But trying to do it on their own is risky. In China, the government takes a large role in branding for the country as a whole. And many times, Chinese companies don't even know really what their role is once they're outside the borders of China. So how do you see large Chinese companies taking a, a larger role in spreading Chinese culture to promote their products in overseas markets, even if indirectly? Okay, well, some of the companies are private. Some of the companies are state-owned enterprises, SOEs. I think it's a little bit different uh, because the SOEs are obviously quasi-governmental. They may have more constraints on them, but then they may have more resources too. I think it's really important for those kinds of companies to spread their wings and to learn the local market and really get uh, involved. Getting involved doesn't mean getting involved in anything controversial. It means promoting Chinese culture. It could be something as, as simple as sponsoring a fashion show with Chinese designers. Um, I've met a number of Chinese designers who've done some gorgeous creations. And it could be a museum exhibition, like about Zheng He, or maybe it's about something Western that's, um, that's traveling uh, around Europe or uh, American, America. And they could have special activities and events for opinion leaders uh, and um, get those opinion leaders to know about their company as well. And I want to say something about key opinion leaders, KOLs, that's what they call it in the business. And there are various kinds of KOLs. Usually we think of them in terms of uh, fashion leaders and movie stars and things like this. There's a variety of them. And another idea I have is that so many people come from abroad to go to conferences like the one that you and I attended in Hainan. And they may or may not know very much or anything about China. I think if China, both company-wise and government-wise, could identify the key opinion leaders and ask them to stay on a few extra days and show them around uh, at the sponsor's expense, if they like what they see, they'll tell their friends on social media. If they like what they see, they'll tell their friends in person. So I'm thinking, for instance, of the maybe most dynamic area in China now is this um, Bay Area 
development that's going to go from Macau, Hong Kong to southern China, you know, Shenzhen, Guangzhou, and so on. If it were a single city, it'd be the biggest city in the world, yeah, bigger than Tokyo. And so even uh, if people who are going to conferences in that area had a chance to see the changes, and I've seen them and you've seen them, uh, I think that um, most of them would be fascinated. Some might be frightened, but most would be fascinated by what they see and by the speed of change. Because in that particular area, especially uh, in southern China around Shenzhen, 40 years ago, it was a fishing village. Yeah. And now it's a huge uh, modern city of mostly young people. And so I think this would impress the opinion leaders, and I think that they would carry the message back. This is not propaganda. This is just seeing what they see. Yeah. There's good, there's bad, there's ugly, there's beautiful. And so I think if they had a chance to see and to tell others, it would help us build multilateral and bilateral relations. Well, it's been an amazing talk today, Harvey, and I thank you for your unique perspectives and sharing with us today. Thanks, James. And I really admire what you do, not only with the podcast, but with your various businesses and with your acting as a mentor for young people. Um, I think this is a really the friendship and uh, the people-to-people, uh, -people, uh, the best of people-to-people -people exchanges that is the fifth pillar of Belt and Road Initiative. So thank you very much. Voices of the Belt and Road podcast. If you want to learn more about the Belt and Road Initiative, check out our website at beltandroad.ventures. That's Belt and Road, one word, no spaces, and dot ventures, B E N T U R E S. On the website, you can subscribe to our weekly Belt and Road Bulletin and also follow our Belt and Road Advisory social media accounts on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. That way, you'll always be up to date on what is happening on the Belt and Road. Thanks for tuning in and see you next week. <laughs>